0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This week we're going to be shaking off the cobwebs on the old grey matter. Whether it's a hefty hardback on mathematics or a fictional comedy that explores mental disabilities, this podcast is all about books that make you think. But before we set you off to embrace the books that will challenge your brain power, we're going to take a look at the source of all our thinking, our brains. Our brains. Dick Swab has concluded that we are our brains and explains in his book of the same title what is going on in our brains at every stage of life. Here he is telling Kale Matilla the main argument of his book.
2: Well, the main argument starts in the WOMP, and that is that uh, we are determined uh, in our potencies, also in our limitations by, in the first place, our genetic background and how we were growing up in the WOMP and then whether we would uh, be received in a warm and and, uh, safe environment that stimulates the potencies of our brain to develop. So it's early development that uh, is determining us to a large degree.
3: So in other words, we don't just have brains, we are our brains. That's right. And each of our brains are different, correct?
2: Yes, even if the uh, genetic background is the same, like in identical twins, Then if you make an MRI scan at the moment of birth, the brains are microscopically already different. And that is because uh, the brain is only partly developing on the basis of genetic information, partly it's developing on local processes. It's self-organizing its structure by competing for the best contacts. Uh, the best contacts stay, and the rest is disappearing. And with those uh, disappearing contacts, also the cells are disappearing. So it's a competition for the best context, which we call, uh, call uh, neuronal Darwinism. It's a fight for uh, the best place in the network, and that makes every brain
3: different. What What are some of the differences between female and male brains, then? Oh,
2: there are so many differences. When, when we published the first difference in 85 in Science, there was quite some uh, reaction from the feministic uh, movement because those days it was allowed to have uh, differences in any part of the body but not in the brain because brain and behavior differences were caused by the male society. But now, since then, hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, differences in structure and function have been found, and uh, I think it cannot be denied anymore that uh, there are differences between the male and female brain. Of course, there's overlap in some differences, and there's no overlap in other differences. It all depends on the function.
3: Could you talk a bit more about uh, how adolescents' brains differ from adult ones?
2: Um, yes, at at the moment that the sex hormones are uh, rising in puberty, then uh, the question is of course which brain areas are influenced by sex hormones, and the answer is every brain area from the rostral part, from from the prefrontal cortex down to the spinal cord. All the brain areas are influenced by sex hormones, not all the brain cells, but uh, in each area, their brain cells that are sensitive to sex hormones and that means that in adolescence uh, people have to learn to work with a totally different brain they have to adapt to that and that gives quite some problems for uh, the uh, for the children themselves and for the parents of course
3: yeah, you have an interesting theory about why teenagers are so rebellious. <laughs> and it's linked to the brain, correct?
2: Yes, yes. It's, uh, I, I think it has got an evolutionary advantage because um, uh, this is the period that uh, they start to become reproductive. And if they would reproduce in the same environment, then there would be an accumulation of uh, little mistakes on DNA, mut- the mutations. And that would accumulate, it would cause uh, disease and problems. So what should happen is that uh, you get uh, enough from your own parents, Uh, you fight them, Uh, you look for a new environment, Uh, you don't take decisions on the long run, only on the impulsive, on the short run, and you move out to a new environment where you reproduce. And that is, from an evolutionary point of view, very advantageous.
3: And in what ways are the brains of gay and straight people different?
2: Again, when we uh, described the first difference between uh, gay and straight uh, men in the brain, uh, there was an enormous reaction. It was three weeks long uh, telephone terror bomb. Uh, 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 then the people called that there were bombs in, in the lab or bombs at home. There were demonstrations in front of the home. And I caught mail uh, telling me that I would be killed. But um, uh, since then, there are so many differences, both again in in structure and function, reported between gay and straight uh, uh, men that uh, this also cannot be denied anymore. There are differences in the brain, and it's great that there are differences. I, I love all those differences. And I think it's part of the variability that is uh, the motor behind evolution. There has always been a great variability in all our properties, in, including sexual orientation, including gender identity. And, and uh, this is, of course, uh, uh, the motor behind the possibility of making selections during evolution.
3: So you would say that we are born gay or transsexual.
2: Yes, that's certainly the case. Yes, and uh, uh, the. Um, uh, I think it's an important conclusion, but because that, that is also in general true. We are born with a certain brain, and we can only live in a happy way when the environment is adapted to the way our brain is developed. So if you are gay, you should live as a gay person in a pleasant surrounding, accepting this. And the same holds, of course, for uh, transsexuality and for all our other properties. And I I think it's the uh, state that should guarantee the freedom to live in the the way your brain has been uh, developing. That's uh, my philosophy.
1: That was Dick Swab talking about the thesis of his book We Are Our Brains, which is out now. If the brain acts as a regulator, aiding how we function and interact with each other, any cognitive behaviour that strays from the norm ultimately stands out. Writers have explicitly tried to explore this in fiction, but in Graham Simpson's case, the creation of his eccentric character Don Tillman in The Rosie Project unexpectedly raised questions around mental disabilities. Here he explains how Don came about and whether his
4: mental condition, if indeed there is one, is something that needs to be highlighted. One of the most common questions I'm asked about The Rosie Project is Does Don Tillman have Asperger's Syndrome? So, so let me tell you a story. When I first gave Don Tillman his first outing, it was in a short story called The Jacket Incident, which has in fact survived largely intact into the book. Um, so before I took it to class, I showed it to a friend said, what do you think? And he said, oh yeah, nice story about a guy with Asperger's syndrome. It never occurred to me. He was just a socially awkward person like many people I'd met in my career in information technology and in academe. But I thought, yeah, I guess. So I took it to class and said, here's a story about a man with Asperger's syndrome. And immediately, all anybody wanted to talk about was Asperger's, you know, oh, would this guy really be interested in making connection with other people? You've got him drinking. Do do people with Asperger's drink? Does he wear socks? Somebody told me once that people with Asperger's didn't and so on. All they wanted to talk about was Asperger's and it was a real message back to me about people seeing the the syndrome or you might say the disability and not seeing the person. And I wanted them to see my my person and his needs above and beyond any syndrome he might have. I wasn't out to be uh, a walking textbook. So Although the advice from that class was, do more research on Asperger's, what I took away was, don't say that your man has Asperger's. And even though we we touch on it in the book when he talks to the Aspie kids, whether Don has Asperger's or not is never stated explicitly in the book. And that's been very, very deliberate. That said, um, when I've been asked, does Don Tillman have Asperger's? My answer has been, how should I know? I'm not a psychologist, I didn't base him on a textbook, he's based on people I met. Um, the citation when I won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript was, Don Tillman is a genetics professor with undiagnosed Asperger's Syndrome. And I thought to myself, undiagnosed except by the experts on the judging panel for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, so you know, in- interesting how people make these sorts of judgments, but. Recently, I had lunch with Tony Atwood, Professor Tony Atwood, who is considered one of the world's experts on Asperger's Syndrome, and he said to me, Graham, Don Tillman has Asperger's. So you can take it that the experts believe that Don doesn't have Asperger's. Finally, uh, people say, how much research did you do into Asperger's? And My answer is, I spent 30 years working in information technology. And that meant I worked with a lot of people who may well have had Asperger's syndrome, but virtually none of whom, because of the age group they came through, had been diagnosed with it. Um, So, Don is not meant to be any sort of walking, talking embodiment of Asperger's syndrome, nor do I think there should be, because that would be a very one-dimensional character. Yes, it appears he has Asperger's syndrome, but probably so does Christopher in The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory. And I would argue that literature and popular culture needs lots of people with Asperger's syndrome. So eventually we start to see past their similarities to their differences. And I think it's much more helpful to look at the differences between Don Tillman and Sheldon Cooper than to say, oh wow, reading this book is like being in Sheldon Cooper's head. It is in one dimension.
1: Graham Simpson, talking about the protagonist in his book, The Rosie Project, which is now available in paperback. Next, we're going to talk to the man who has investigated a way to make ourselves more intelligent. I say we, I mean me. I spoke to Dan Hurley about the new science of building brain power and questioned whether the human brain has a limit to how much it can learn
5: as recently as 10 years ago, uh, psychologists who studied intelligence were very convinced that you could do nothing to increase it. A lot of efforts have been put in, especially since the 1960s, to try to help kids from uh, difficult backgrounds and such. And while they can help people do better in life, they don't seem to have a real effect on their intelligence. So. Uh, In 2008, a paper came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that said that doing this thing called working memory training, uh, it's a very special kind of uh, diabolically difficult uh, mind exercises, that this seemed to increase uh, both working memory generally, which is a very important skill, and your intelligence, your fluid intelligence.
1: There are a whole bunch of questions off the back yes. of that. Let's let's start with a basic one. Uh, what do you mean by
5: intelligence? So, you know, intelligence has a bad rep. Uh, people don't like it in part because everyone has told us that you can't do anything about it, and we don't like things that we can't do anything about, uh, especially things that go to to our uh, deep into our human nature. Uh, It's as if someone said, uh, you can never uh, get uh, wealthier. It's kind of like class, like the old class system, as if this was a medieval. It's a medievalism of the mind. And uh, so but the truth is that intelligence does matter. Uh, It's the way not just doing well on tests, but uh, it actually has a a deep influence on your own personal life, your ability to control your emotions, to get along well with others, to understand what people are doing, and all the traditional things, problem-solving. Why does grandpa get befuddled when a few people are coming over to have a small meal on Sunday? Why does he feel the need to cook that turkey the day before, and, and he can't, and he gets all f- thrown off by everything because his ability to, to deal with challenging situations is getting degraded, and why does why do children who have problems in school often you know some of them are going to end up in uh, will end up in, in jail. Uh, and this is, again, because they're not able to think things through, look at the consequences of things. And the, the issues
1: there, it seems to me, that, that come off that are that there is the distinction between intelligence, comprehension, understanding, social interaction, and what for the moment I'm going to call a sort of testable parameters. In other words, how many things you can remember, uh, how well you can put together sort of engineering or pattern Recognition well, a symbols. lot of that,
5: a lot of that is closely related. As much as these tests seem annoying, they're some of the best measurements that psychology has. It's there's been a hundred years of this because it's actually really important. It's actually if you're and, and there's a lot of uh, financial interest and uh, national security interest if you want to have people in the military. Who can do their job. If you want to hire the right person, these kinds of tests they're, they're not doing them just for laughs or just because they're prejudiced. These tests are very useful. The most important, though, is not what we think of as short term memory or long term memory, it's working memory. This is your ability to uh, not just remember uh, a seven digit number, but to give it to me backwards when I tell it to you if it's to uh, manipulate <clears throat> the items of your, your your thoughts. how
1: does that translate into effective life skills? I mean the ability to remember a number backwards might indicate a kind of gymnastic capacity mm-hmm. uh, of the intelligence, but that doesn't actually mean that you understand the way that numbers matter
5: any more than being able to spell my name backwards would make you understand poetry. You know, really what this is all about, the human brain is not an information machine. We're not a computer. We're a knowledge machine. We're, as it were, I don't mean to say that we're machines, (laughs) but, uh, you know, we don't just remember everything randomly. We remember what's knowledge, useful, meaningful, Why do you remember your name better than anyone else? Because that's your name. And why, if you meet an attractive, if you're 19 years old and you meet an attractive person, uh, do you remember that person's name and phone number without even having to to scribble it down? Uh, Because it's meaningful to you. So meaning is what all of this is about. And uh, being able to uh, do these obscure little intelligence tests actually go to the heart of your ability to... You know, if you're a writer, what did Shakespeare do? We were just talking before we be- began recording. Shakespeare played with words. And he's he is manipulating them and flipping them and turning them upside down. Americans go crazy because all the... All the uh, the sentences seem to be constructed almost backwards to us and but that's what he's doing. he's playing with it and that's what we do when we're walking down the street and we're trying to figure out where how do I get there and we're thinking it through and trying to remember this and that and the other thing and make sense of it.
1: So you've been researching the idea that the brain can in fact be be helped in its, Quest towards greater intelligence, greater knowledge, greater understanding. What kind of things have you discovered then that that can help, that can be beneficial?
5: Well, uh, it's not I that I haven't discovered it. Uh, I'm a journalist, so what I did was dive into the literature and look at what's out there. And uh, there are seven basic things. There's working memory games. <clears throat> There's something called SoakYourHead.com. Where there's a free uh, one of these games, there's Lumosity, uh, there's, for people with particular cognitive problems, there's something called CogMed. Uh, So that's one area. Uh, There's physical exercise has been shown to help. Uh, uh, Music, learning a musical instrument, transcranial direct current stimulation, which is getting your (laughs) brain zapped with very, very, very low dose electricity. Uh, there's hundreds of studies on that. And uh, nicotine has also been shown to be one of the great cognitive enhancers, not tobacco. Tobacco is bad. <laughs> but uh, I did use a nicotine patch and uh, very the, at the lowest dose. I'm not a smoker. And I did find it seemed to help. And after I did all these things for three and a half months, my fluid intelligence was up by 16%.
1: And what actual impact did that have on you? You're a smart man. You've been working on inventive and creative works for many years. What change were you aware of having done these these months of trial?
5: You know, the main thing that I noticed uh, was I seemed to be better at sorting out the complexities of my life. Uh, I uh, I was having a hard time finding a quiet place to write. Uh, because uh, my daughter's been having some health problems and uh, things were just a little nutty at home. And I decided, oh, I'm going to go, even though it's going to cost money and take me over an hour, I'm going to go take the, tr- the train into New York City and go to the, the glorious New York Public Library and sit there in this glorious space. Um, I figured out a lot better how to help my daughter and she really recovered. She was uh, dealing with anorexia and I really had to figure out what was the best way to get her some help. Uh, things just seemed uh, a lot more peaceful around the house and uh, that's a really important thing. So you can get better memory, you can
1: get faster problem solving, greater understanding and greater peace. out of-
5: One hopes so. <laughs> You know, it's uh, listen. Uh, like anything, uh, th- this is not a self-help book. This is about uh, you know. I do talk a lot about my own experiences, and one thing for me was that when I was a, a child, uh, even though I'm you know a science journalist now writing about intelligence, uh, when I was eight years old, I couldn't read. I was having a lot of troubles, and uh, the teacher said to my mother, Daniel is a slow learner. And this is like not a fun thing. This is, and I have always been very sensitive to people that are labeled in this way because it, it, it hurts. And uh, what, what happened for me was that uh, my best friend became obsessed with Spider-Man comic books and I started reading them. And before I knew it, uh, you know, I was a straight A student. So I don't know if Spider-Man saved me or what it was, but <laughs> so, But I, I really always wonder, gee, how can... Did I get smarter there? Did I literally get smarter? And I think this kind of research shows that you, you can increase your abilities, you can do better, and you, know, you shouldn't let people tell you, oh, you're, you, know, you can't do that. You, you, you can expand. Dan Hurley,
1: discussing how it's possible for us to get smarter. And his book, Smarter, is available now. You're listening to The Penguin Podcast. From exercising brain power to thinking tools now, Daniel C. Dennett presents his book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, which reveals easier ways to better
0: understand the world around us and our place in it. One of the things I tell my students is that whenever they see the word surely in a text, a little bell should ring ding, get them to stop and look. Because most of the time, not most of the time, a third of the time, anyway, by my calculations, that word surely is papering over the most significant crack in the argument, the weakest spot in the argument. And it's not hard to see why. The author has used surely to introduce a proposition that he or she wants you to accept. And it's not so obvious that it goes without saying, because if it were, it would go without saying, and the author feels the need to say it. But the author doesn't want to take the time to argue for it. Life is short. So let's see if we can just get everybody onto the next page by saying nudge, nudge surely, and then get on with it. So it's a good place to look for a weak spot in the argument. And since I've trained the students up on this. First of all, they've caught me a few times in in the class. I'll say Shirley, and half the class will go ding, (laughs) which is always a little bit startling. But I've been collecting anecdotes now about uh, Shirley alarms. And I say that less than half of the cases of Shirley are, as it were, uh, suspect. Many of them are perfectly innocent and okay. But it's, a, it's just a nice rule of thumb. You'll have a few false alarms, but don't worry about that. It's a good way of catching, uh, catching a weak spot. Rhetorical questions are another weak spot. Every rhetorical question is, in effect, gesturing to a reductio ad absurdum argument that uh, is not even being uh, asserted uh, and not even being expressed. You're just supposed to get on with it and be lulled by the rhetorical question, which would be so embarrassing it's not worth answering. Uh, The remedy for that is to get in the habit of trying to answer the rhetorical questions. This is not the intent of the speaker, but sometimes it works. Uh, A very simple example, one that I remember comes from a Peanuts cartoon of years ago, where Charlie Brown says, who's to say what the difference is between right and wrong? And in the last panel, Lucy says, I will. Oh, <laughs> it just r- brings you up short. So you always want to silently try to answer those rhetorical questions. And every now and then you'll find yourself, you catch a big fish that way. So uh, the first part of the book is a dozen simple thinking tools like that. They're just little little apps, in effect, that you download to your neck top, and then they Give you a little extra uh, disposition a little talent you didn't otherwise have, but the more elaborate ones are the are the intuition pumps proper and those are stories they're little uh, artifacts designed and engineered to confront you with a circumstance where at the end of it you pound your fist on the table and say, oh, yeah, I got it. Boom, I, I get it. It's like the conclusion of a formal argument, but it usually isn't a formal argument. It's just a little story. They're informal persuasion devices. And I call them intuition pumps because I want to encourage people to think of them in an engineering spirit, to think of them as artifacts, as, as, as gadgets that have a purpose, And that can be taken apart and you can see what makes them tick. You can turn all the knobs, try all the variations. And sometimes you're surprised to discover that what seems like an inessential detail is actually doing the work. Change that detail and the whole effect goes away. Uh, A word much in uh, evidence in engineering circles these days is robust and a good engineering pump should be robust that means it should work under lots of conditions and you should be able to, to uh, change the settings and the variables and still have it work and it's interesting to see how many famous intuition pumps in philosophy are not robust you turn a knob or two and the effect evaporates in front of your eyes.
1: Daniel C Dennett giving us a brief introduction to his latest book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, which is out now. Now that we know our brains can absorb lots of new information, the next question is, are you ready to pick up the subjects you shied away from at school? Max Tegmark, author of Our Mathematical Universe, admits physics was always his least favourite subject. So how, then, did he go on to be a leading writer on maths and physics? It's
6: quite ironic that when I was a high school student, my most boring subject was physics. And then this friend of mine gave me a book by by, this guy Richard Feynman, saying, you have to read this. And uh, even though the book wasn't about physics at all, it was clear from reading between the lines that this guy just loved physics. And this intrigued me. It, It was like if you see some very mediocre looking guy walking down the street arm in arm with this supermodel, you're gonna to think to yourself, I'm missing something here, you know, this guy must have hidden qualities. And I started wondering what hidden qualities does physics have that Richard Feynman is seeing that I'm missing? So I looked at one of his physics books, the Feynman Lectures on Physics, and it was like, wow, a revelation. I couldn't believe it. And suddenly a light bulb went off in my head and I realized that actually physics is the best detective mystery ever. And I have always loved mysteries. It's not about just some boring, figuring out some stupid number. It's about trying to understand what's actually happened. Where did our universe come from? What's gonna happen in the future? What am I really? What is all this stuff? And that's made me just completely fall in love with physics and it's a love that's lasted my whole life. And and the most amazing thing is They even pay me to do it now, so I actually get paid to do what would otherwise be my favourite hobby.
1: Max Tegmark, on his love of physics, which is central to his book, Our Mathematical Universe, which was released at the start of this year. So far in this podcast, we've discovered the developments of our brains, that we're capable of learning new subjects, and that it's always possible to develop an interest in a new field. It's now time to put our brains to the test and ask the question... Are you ready to think smarter this year? We believe to challenge your mind, you need to read, ponder, challenge and question as much as you can in as many different fields of knowledge as you can. That's where our bi-monthly Think Smarter newsletter comes in, with its exclusive features, essays and extracts from a roster of Penguin non-fiction authors unrivaled for their expertise in science, sociology, philosophy and much more. The first issue is out now, featuring Adam Rutherford and Dan Hurley. So sign up at www.penguin.co.uk forward slash thinksmarter and receive it today. You can also follow the hashtag thinksmarter on Twitter. Before we leave, we're going to ponder the future of our brains, thoughts, and ideas. This episode has already demonstrated the massive scientific advances that have led us to understand more about the most important organ in our body. But what else is there? A smart pill to enhance our cognition? Being able to upload our thoughts onto a computer? Dr. Michio Kaku takes us on a grand tour of what the future might hold
7: in this extract from the audiobook The Future of the Mind. Using MRI scans... Scientists can now read thoughts circulating in our brains. Scientists can also insert a chip into the brain of a patient who is totally paralyzed and connected to a computer, so that through thought alone, that patient can surf the web, read and write emails, play video games, control their wheelchair, operate household appliances, and manipulate mechanical arms. In fact, such patients can do anything a normal person can do via a computer. Scientists are now going even further by connecting the brain directly to an exoskeleton that these patients can wear around their paralyzed limbs. Quadriplegics may one day lead near-normal lives. Such exoskeletons may also give us superpowers, enabling us to handle deadly emergencies. One day, our astronauts may even explore the planets by mentally controlling mechanical surrogates from the comfort of their living rooms. As in the movie The Matrix, we might one day be able to download memories and skills using computers. In animal studies, scientists have already been able to insert memories into the brain. Perhaps it's only a matter of time before we, too, can insert artificial memories into our brains to learn new subjects, vacation in new places, and master new hobbies. And if technical skills can be downloaded into the minds of workers and scientists, this may even affect the world economy. We might even be able to share these memories as well. One day, scientists may construct an Internet of the Mind or a brain net, where thoughts and emotions are sent electronically around the world. Even dreams will be videotaped and then brain-mailed across the Internet. Technology may also give us the power to enhance our intelligence. Progress has been made in understanding the extraordinary powers of savants, whose mental, artistic, and mathematical abilities are truly astonishing. Furthermore, the genes that separate us from the apes are now being sequenced, giving us an unparalleled glimpse into the evolutionary origins of the brain. Genes have already been isolated in animals that can increase their memory and mental performance. The excitement and promise generated by these eye-opening advances are so enormous that they have also caught the attention of the politicians. In fact, brain science has suddenly become the source of a transatlantic rivalry between the greatest economic powers on the planet. In January 2013, both President Barack Obama and the European Union announced what could eventually become multi-billion dollar funding for two independent projects that would reverse-engineer the brain. Deciphering the intricate neural circuitry of the brain, once considered hopelessly beyond the scope of modern science, Is now the focus of two crash projects that, like the Human Genome Project, will change the scientific and medical landscape. Not only will this give us unparalleled insight into the mind, it will also generate new industries, spur economic activity, and open up new vistas for neuroscience. Once the neural pathways of the brain are finally decoded, one can envision understanding the precise origins of mental illness, perhaps leading to a cure for this ancient affliction. This decoding also makes it possible to create a copy of the brain which raises philosophical and ethical questions. Who are we if our consciousness can be uploaded into a computer? We can also toy with the concept of immortality. Our bodies may eventually decay and die, but can our consciousness live forever? And beyond that, perhaps one day, in the distant future, the mind will be freed of its bodily constraints and roam among the stars, as several scientists have speculated. Centuries from now, one can imagine placing our entire neural blueprint on laser beams, which will then be sent into deep space, perhaps the most convenient way for our consciousness to explore the stars. A brilliant new scientific landscape that will reshape human destiny is now truly opening up. We are now entering a new golden age of neuroscience. That was an extract from the audiobook
1: of The Future of the Mind by Dr. Michio Kaku, which is available in February. And that's it from The Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at penguinpodcast.
0: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.